0: Welcome to the sermons of Steve Galloway, pastor of First Baptist Church, Macon, Mississippi. Let us join together and study God's Word and apply it to our hearts so that we may learn His truths and live faithful, obedient lives. May God bless our time together. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 20, John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. Allow me to read this passage. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them both his hands and his side, the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you, res- if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Let's bow together in prayer. Dear Lord, open our hearts to your truths. Lord, help us to realize that, Lord, that when you came back alive, Lord, you gave us a specific instruction to follow. Lord, just as you were sent here, we are also sent. Help us, Lord, to take that commission seriously, to realize that we're here for a purpose. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last week we dealt with Mary Magdalene. She was the first one to see the empty tomb. She is the first one to see Jesus alive. And we saw that she became the first evangelist to go and tell the good news that Jesus had resurrected from the dead. Now, I'm sorry, I got a little bit of a crackle. Let me see if I can get a little better. If you read uh, Luke chapter 24, you would find that it's probably the most uh, filled, chronicle, chronologically ordered part of the Gospels. John does not go into a lot of details when he shares what happened uh, at the crucifixion and the resurrection. Uh, but, but Luke goes into a lot more detail. Luke deals with uh, the, the men on their way to Emmaus and how Jesus met them. and We'll kind of touch on that in just a little bit. But we find out that when Jesus meets these men in this, in this room that's locked. It's not just 10 men. It's not just 10 of his apostles, minus uh, the doubting Thomas. We'll pick him up next week. But it's also these two men who were on their way to Emmaus, who once they found out that they had been traveling with the Lord Jesus, they made their way back to Jerusalem so they could be with these men. And it also says, and others. So we look and we see that there are many people in this room. Now, verse 19 says, It was the first day of the week. It was evening of that day. This is still the day that Jesus rose from the dead. This is still that first Sunday, that first Easter Sunday. And so we look and we see that the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. Now, what's this fear all about? Why are they hiding? Well, the simple fact is, these Jewish leaders had Jesus arrested and crucified. Now, the temple guards were those who were under the uh, auspices of the Sanhedrin, and they were instrumental in, in keeping order among Jerusalem, among the Jewish people. Now, if these religious leaders saw that Jesus was a threat to them and had him executed, What's going to keep them from trying to round up his followers, especially those 11 now men who have been following him for some three and a half years? Why not gather them together and say, let's just put an end to this. If they try to keep on doing what Jesus is doing, teaching what Jesus is teaching, we need to end this right now. And so out of fear of the Jews, they were in a locked room. Now, if you go into all the Greek and everything, more than likely it was not only just shut it was locked and even barred. They wanted to make sure that they were safe. So we look and we see that they believe that they're in a safe environment, that no one can get in. But somebody got in. Look at verse 19 again. Jesus came and stood in their midst. Now if the doors are locked, barred, there's no holes in the walls that we know of, all of a sudden Jesus just suddenly appears in their midst. What does that say about Jesus? There's something different about him now. Prior to this, Jesus was always in a physical body with physical limitations. He was never in two places at the same time. There's no evidence that he ever just appeared into a place without walking into it. Here we find something a little bit different. Jesus suddenly appears into a locked barred room. What does that say about Jesus? Something different about Him. Now, when He died and was placed in the grave, He died in a physical body and laid in a physical place. We touched on it just a little bit a week or so ago when we find out that the grave clothes are still wrapped up as if they were still wrapped around a body. They They had not been ripped off. They had not been unwrapped, which means that Jesus pass through the grave clothes. Now, can y'all do that? No, we can't. When Jesus was resurrected from the dead, when he came back to life, he was not in the same type of body that he was during his earthly ministry or like we are today. He was in what we call a glorified body. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that he could pass through his grave clothes. It means that he could pass through locked doors or walls. He suddenly appeared to his apostles. Now, it's hard for us to understand how this happens. We don't know. But what we do know is that Jesus was able to do these things. But what we do know is that, according to Luke, he even asked for something to eat, and they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he ate it. So he was showing that he had the same qualifications of a human he still ate they were able to touch him Mary Magdalene reached out and grabbed him he had to say quit clinging to me so he still had somewhat of a physical body but at the same time it was different matter of fact if you read Luke's account of Jesus going along with those two men on that road to Emmaus they did not recognize him until the end of the journey and he sat down with them and broke bread and immediately they recognized him for who he was they recognized him as jesus now why did not they recognize him along the way they spent hours with him he had talked about how going through the prophets going through the old testament going through all the things that had happened Proof that he, that this man Jesus was the Messiah. And then when their eyes were open, they said, Did didn't our hearts burn when we heard His voice telling us these things? But then when they recognized Him, Jesus was no longer there with them. Immediately they got up and they headed back to Jerusalem. Let me just read this passage of Scripture. Luke chapter 24, verse 23, uh, 32 through 33 they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while, we were, while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found gathered together the 11 and those who were with them. So when they came back, they found his 11 disciples as well as others and they joined them. So when Jesus appears for whatever reason, Thomas has left cause there's only 10 apostles at this time, but there's also these two men from, uh, from the road to Emmaus as well as others that are in this room. Now, the glorified body suddenly appears. If all these doors are barred and there's no other way to get in, and we were here together, and all of a sudden somebody that wasn't already here all of a sudden just appeared right in the middle what would happen? Would you be in shock? Would there be a little fear? How in the world did this person get here? More than likely we would be. It's never happened. It won't happen. But that's exactly what happened to this group of people in this locked room. And they were terrified. Just like we would be. Until they heard a voice. Look at the last part, of verse 19. And he said to them, Peace be with you. They hear the master's voice. They recognize him and suddenly the fear and the shock that they were experiencing fades away and they begin rejoicing. Now again, they hear the voice of their Lord just like Mary did. She didn't even recognize Jesus until he said Mary. They hear his voice and immediately the fear, the shock fades away. And they began rejoicing. Why? Because they know for a fact that Jesus is alive. They had heard Mary tell them that, but now they saw him. Seeing is believing, right? Isn't that what we always say? Well, faith comes without seeing, without sight. And they were lacking on their faith without sight. And so Jesus appears to them. And now they know that they have nothing to fear. They know that Jesus truly is alive. Verse 20 picks up and says that he showed them his hands and his side. Now, I struggle with this. Why would a glorified body have scars on it? Why would a glorified body have the marks of the nails going through his hands and the spear going up through his side? Luke even says, and the scars on his feet. Could it be that Jesus' perfected, glorified body at this moment still shows the scars simply because he needs to prove that he is Jesus? He needs to show them, I'm not a figment of your imagination. I am not what you used to see me like. I am the crucified Savior. And he proves it by showing his hands and his side. Now, here in our centuries today, You could go to uh, a movie studio and find a makeup artist that could make believe that you had scars all over your body. And they would look very real. But that wasn't available in Jesus' day. When they saw the scars, they knew that they were real. They knew that Jesus had truly come back to life. So, he gave bodily proof. Even though it was a glorified body, it still showed the, the evidence of his crucifixion. Last part of that says, and they rejoiced greatly when they saw the Lord. Now, we weren't there. I have a feeling they were jumping up and down for joy. They didn't know what to think. Their Lord that they saw crucified on the cross and laid under grave is now alive right there before them. Proof positive, he showed them his hands and his side. They knew for a fact this is Jesus and he is alive. Now, they were now rejoicing. Now Jesus again in verse 21 says, Peace be with you. Exact same words that he said in verse 19 when they were terrified. Why is he saying peace be with you again? They're not terrified. They're jumping up and down with joy. They're rejoicing. Well, he asked to get them back under control in a different way. Instead of bringing them out of their shock and their fear, with peace be with you, he is now bringing them back down out of euphoria by saying, peace be with you. In other words, when Jesus says these words, it makes the disciples stop and focus on what he is saying. And what he is saying next is critical. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now, when we look at this, we see this is a continued mission of Jesus. We look and we see that if you go back just a few chapters in John chapter 17, verse 18, you see basically these same words. He is preaching, uh, praying this high priestly prayer for his disciples. And he's basically saying, as you, God, Father, sent Me into the world, I have also sent them into the world." So this is not a new statement. He has been saying this. These last week or two of His ministry with His disciples has been pretty much isolated with them. And these were the words that He was saying to them. He is preparing them for what will take place after His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. He knows that He will no longer be here but he is leaving them behind to continue that ministry, to continue why God had sent him. Now, why did God send Jesus, the son, to earth? Why? Well, the earth was so corrupt that it needed a lot of social justice taken care of, right? It needed to set up hospitals and schools and all sorts of ways to take care of the needs of people. That's why Jesus came, right? No. Unfortunately, a lot of churches have gotten so caught up in the social ministries that they've forgotten why Jesus came and why we're still here. It says, As the Father sent me, I also send you. There's only one reason why Jesus came. To seek and to save that which is lost. If that's the only reason why Jesus came, then why are we still here? If Jesus says, as the Father sent me, I am sending you. If the Father sent Jesus to seek and to save that which is lost, then guess what? Our job is to seek and to save that which is lost. How do we know this? Notice all the illustrations that Jesus gives about that which is lost. The lost sheep, where the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes and searches for the one. The lost coin, where the lady has lost one of her coins and she calls all of her friends together to search the house until it is found. The lost soul that Jesus came to save. Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. And he says, as the Father sent me to do this, now I am sending you. Well, that's just for those 10 men, maybe 11 because Jesus comes back again a week later and now Thomas is there. Maybe it's just those 11 people that he gave this commission to. No. According to what I just read in Luke, it's 10 people there, 10 of his apostles, two men that were on the road to Emmaus that are now with them and others. Jesus is saying, y'all get over on this wall. I'm just going to talk to my apostles over here and give them this commission. No, he was sharing it with all his followers. And guess what? You and I are one of his followers. We are his followers. We're still under this commission today. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And that commission continues with his followers today. Now, verse 22 has caused a lot of discussion among theologians. Here's what it says. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Did this group of people in this locked room receive the power of the Holy Spirit at that moment? Well, the evidence is no. Why do we say no? Well, if they had received the power of the Holy Spirit right then, they would have left that place immediately and began ministering in his name. Instead, we find out that 40 days later at Pentecost, after Jesus has ascended to the Father, they are waiting in this upper room for the Holy Spirit, and He comes, and He fills that place, and they are filled with the Spirit, and then immediately they begin preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Instead, what we find out is that a week later, they're still hiding in a locked room. Does that show that they are filled with the Holy Spirit? No. So what does it mean here? Why does Jesus breathe over them and say receive the spirit? If it doesn't mean right then, well, you got to take the Bible in context. Go back to Luke chapter 24 where it is more specified as to what took place. Remember, John does not go into a lot of detail Luke does. You go back to Luke, chapter 24, verse 49. Guess what? You find yourself in the exact same situation. They're in this locked room. Jesus is with all these people. And here's what he says. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He As he is breathing, as he says, receive the Holy Spirit. What Jesus is actually saying, we find in Luke, is that I am sharing with you the promise of the Holy Spirit. I am reminding you that he is coming. You will receive him. You will receive him. This is my promise. Receive the Holy Spirit. Not now, but 40 days from now when he comes, receive him. That's all this means. There's no mystery in it. There's no, well, they received part of the Holy Spirit then, and then they received another part of it 40 days later. No. Jesus was simply sharing with them, in all your shock, in all that's been going on, I want you to remember what I have already promised you. As a matter of fact, let's look at what he promised you. Look at John chapter 16, verse 7. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. Notice the word, I must go first before He comes. Jesus is still with them. The Holy Spirit cannot come until Jesus goes. Forty days later, Jesus ascends to the Father in heaven. And 40 days later, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes. That's what the Bible tells us. And that's what we need to believe. This is simply a reminder, a promise of the coming of the Spirit. And a reminder that they are to receive Him. Now we go to verse 23. And we find another dilemma. Let me read it. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any. They have been retained. That means that his disciples have the power to forgive sin. Right? No. Unfortunately our Catholic friends. Have a belief that. There's been a secession from the apostles. Peter being the first Pope. That has been carried down through the centuries. That through the Pope and his clergy. They have the. Authority to forgive sin. To absolve sin. That's not what the Bible tells us. From this day forward, if you read the rest of the New Testament, and all that the apostles did, all that Paul did, there is never, ever, any time, that any of these men preaching the gospel says, I forgive you of your sins. They have no power to do that. So what is it that Jesus is saying to them? If you forgive their sins, if if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Here's the simple fact. Jesus has been teaching them the truth. He has been giving them the gospel. He has been showing them the power of the gospel, the word of God. You and I, as believers, are supposed to be students of the Word of God. We're supposed to know what the Gospel says. And so, basically what he is saying is, if you look at the tenses, it even shows it, that as we share the Gospel of Jesus Christ, as people confess their sins, receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, we, on the authority of the Word of God, can state to them Your sins have been forgiven. And if they reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can state by the authority of the word of God that your sins are still upon you. And if you remain in this situation and you die in the guilt of your sins, you will face the judgment. I'm not condemning them and I'm not releasing them from their sins. The Bible, the truth, the gospel is the only way that their sins can be forgiven. Jesus died for their sins. It is the blood of Christ that washes away their sins. It is not me. I have no power to forgive anyone of their sins, nor to hold their sins against them. Let's put it in something a little bit easier to understand. If you're a parent and you set up a college fund for a child, when does that child get to receive that college fund? When they're accepted into college, right? If they never go to college, guess what? they don't receive that fund, right? It's still sitting there, but it's set us apart for just one purpose, to pay for their college. If they never go to college, it's never received. Jesus died on the cross. The penalty has been paid in full. The account is sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting for anyone to receive that gift. When we confess our sins and receive Jesus as Savior and Lord of our lives, that account becomes full in our account. It is now ours to have. So when that account becomes ours, then our sins are forgiven. If we continue to reject Jesus as Savior and Lord, we never receive that, that is sitting in the account waiting for us to receive. And because of that, we will die in our sins and be facing the judgment. So simply what this means is that as you go, as you continue to do what I have been sent to do, as I send you to continue to seek that which is lost and save them, bring salvation to them, to seek and to save that which is lost, as you continue to preach the gospel, as you continue to minister in my name, as you share how to come to salvation, As people receive that gift of salvation, you have the authority from the Word of God to share with them that their sins have been forgiven. Notice the tense: your sins have been. If you look at that, it is actually a passive verse, passive voice, and perfect tense. Now I don't know uh, enough English grammar to understand what all that means. Doctor Bowser, Miss Sandra, would have known, wouldn't she? And we, we know that, uh, that when you look at all these type of things, it, it shows a continuous action of something that has already happened. God has already forgiven their sins when they receive the gift of salvation, and that forgiveness continues on from that day forward. Does that make sense? Scholars call it the divine tense, that what God has already done, He's done for all waiting for us to receive it. So what Jesus is saying is, as you go, as you preach the gospel, as people receive the gift of salvation, eternal life, you have the authority from the Word of God to share with them their sins have been forgiven. Jesus died on the cross to forgive their sins. It has already been taken care of. Now they have received that gift of forgiveness, and it will continue on in their salvation. As we look at this passage of Scripture, in this, these few verses, Jesus actually preaches a three-point sermon. Point one, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Jesus is again telling his fathers that as he is sent into the world to seek and to save that which is lost, we are to continue in that mode. Now, we need to pray daily that we will be open to the opportunities that God gives us to share the gospel it may be simply to invite somebody into this church so that they can hear a message like this where they're going to hear about the saving power of Jesus Christ. It may be that you build up a relationship and gradually share your faith with someone. It may be that God just gives you the words to say as you just talk to somebody and you say, God just wants me to share my testimony with you. I just need to share with you a change that happened in my life some years back. And you share your personal testimony. And maybe as a part of that you share a simple plan of salvation. How, to, how they too can receive this gift of salvation. And eternal life. And then if they receive that you can say according to the word of God your sins have been forgiven. And God has given you salvation and eternal life. I can't give that to you. But God already has it on your account. You just received it by accepting him. Point two, I am giving you the Holy Spirit. When salvation comes, the Holy Spirit comes. As you and I receive that gift of salvation, eternal life, we also receive the gift and the power of the Holy Spirit, not only around us, but in us, to work in us and through us to do His good and acceptable and perfect will. And part of that good and acceptable perfect will is to do what Jesus has commanded us to do, to continue in His ministry, to seek and to save that which is lost. So the power of the Holy Spirit is now with us and working in us to accomplish God's purpose for us. Point three, Jesus gives us authority and power to accomplish what He's called us to do. First, we already know that the main part of that power is the in filling, in dwelling of His Holy Spirit. It is His power that works in us to accomplish these things. I cannot do it on my own. I cannot save anybody. I cannot, uh, I cannot do anything in my strength and power. It is His power, His authority working in us that enables us to share the gospel. But here's the other part. second thing is He gives us the authority to speak the truths of the Word of God. That means we need to know what the Word of God says. We need to know a simple plan of salvation. We need to know, let me just go to one simple verse, and I've quoted it thousands of times since I've been here probably. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. How clear is that? If we share the gospel of Jesus Christ and the person feels convicted of their sins and say, I confess, I'm a sinner, I need salvation, I need Jesus to be Savior and Lord of my life. If we confess, they just confess that they're a sinner and they believe that Jesus is the only way to receive salvation and eternal life, then if they confess their sins are forgiven and they're cleansed of all their unrighteousness. Wow, one verse. That's the gospel right there. It's that simple. But we can use a lot of the verses to help a person, number one, to understand that they're a sinner. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5.8, God commendeth Himself that... Uh, his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 10, 9 and 10. That if we believe in our heart, that, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth man confesses unto salvation. Simple plan of salvation. You're a sinner because everyone has sinned. You deserve death, eternal separation from God because of your sins. God has a separate plan. Instead of eternal death, He wants to give you eternal life. And there's only one way to receive it. Through His Son, Jesus Christ, the Lord. God showed us His love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for you and me. The just for the unjust. And now, if you'll confess that Jesus is Lord believe that he raised from the dead to save us from our sins, you will receive this gift that's been on your account since Jesus died on the cross. You will receive it and your sins will be forgiven and your unrighteousness will be cleansed away. What a beautiful gift that we can give. And Jesus told that room full of people, as the Father sent me, so send I you. I'm one of the Use that he's saying. You are too. We need to take. Our commission. Much more seriously. Myself included. The world's not getting any better is it? The world's not flocking. To Jesus. You understand why don't you? Because you and I don't tell the world. That they need Jesus. Oh well there's. There's. The Billy Graham ministry with Franklin and Will and all these others, they're they're going all over the world. There's other evangelists going here and there. There's there's these mega churches that are being broadcast all over the world. Great. Doesn't take away what God's called us to do. We're here for a purpose. We need to fulfill that purpose. Let's bow together. Dear Lord, we stand guilty. Guilty that we are not taking the commission that you've given us seriously. Lord, it's so clear. Just as God the Father sent you to seek and to save that which is lost, you are now sending us. Lord, help us to see the opportunities that you give us throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the month. Lord, give us the words to say and the confidence in which to say it. Or if it's simply just invite somebody to come to church where they can hear it, the gospel proclaimed. Or Lord, where we share our personal testimony here. Or Lord, a simple verse or two of the plan of salvation. Help them to understand their need for salvation. Lord, may we be found faithful. Use us through your Spirit. or we cannot do anything on our own. We need the power of your Spirit, the power and authority of your Word. Lord, when you use that through us, then the results are yours, not ours. Whether that person comes to salvation or not, all we can know is that according to your word, if they do, their sins are forgiven, they have received your gift of salvation, eternal life, they reject it and die in their sins, and they will face a judgment. Lord, help us to be used by you to share these truths.